0: the name of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Well, grace to you and peace from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. As the Archbishop and Primate of the Anglican Church in North America, it is a joy to be back here at St. Thomas, also with my wife, Allison. Allison, raise your hand so everybody knows who you are. Uh, thank you for your prayers for us um, as we serve you as, as missionaries uh, in the wider church on your behalf. Uh, Daniel, it's great to be with you. Thanks for your hard work and the, the great team you've put together here, and it's so exciting to see what the Lord is doing in this place. Uh, welcome back from Jerusalem. Uh, shalom to you. <laughs> Uh, St. Thomas is part of the Anglican Diocese of the South, and the Diocese of the South is part of a province, the Anglican Church in North America. And the Anglican Church in North America is in communion with about 60 million Anglicans around the world through what's called GAFCON, the Global Anglican Future Conference, and then the Global Anglican Fellowship. And then we Anglicans are a part of this thing called the body of Christ, the church of the living God, the holy Catholic church throughout the world. And I just want to say the Lord is on the move. He is doing things literally all over the world in great, great ways. And it's good to see what he's doing here. Great. Let's pray. Father, as we open your word, we ask that you'd come in the power of your spirit. Come be our teacher. Help each of us hear from you what we need to hear this day. And this is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you have your Bible, I want to invite you to open to the passage we just heard read, Colossians chapter 1. If you don't, uh, you can turn on your phone and and pull up your Bible app. You can't pull up the other apps, but if uh, you'd like to do that. Um, If not, just listen carefully and hopefully we'll uh, be able to explain what's going on here in this text. Colossians chapter 1. Um, As we begin to look at this passage, it's important to ask the question, so who? Is Jesus. Who is this Jesus? The Apostle Paul, the consummate church planter, the powerful evangelist, and the brilliant theologian that he was, clearly states in this letter what he thinks and what he believes God is attempting to do in our lives. You can see it in verse 22 and 23 that through the death of Jesus Christ, what he's done on the cross, and through his resurrection, That God is attempting to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Look at verse 28. That we, and this is Paul writing, that we may present everyone mature in Christ for this I toil. The context of this passage is one of the things Paul is attempting to do is he's wanting to see these church plants full of mature Christ-like Christians. Isn't that what he wrote to the Ephesians? In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 10, he writes this. And he gave some as apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers to equip the saints, that's you and me, for the work of ministry to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of, of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature personhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we're no longer children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. So if the goal of the Lord is maturity in Him, that you and I be grown-ups in the faith, that you and I be stable believers, that you and I be icons of trusting and obeying God, that you and I be mature in our relationship with Him, So if the goal is maturity in in the Lord, how do we get there? Our text gives us the plain and clear answer. It's through the proclamation and exaltation of Jesus the Messiah. It starts with a clear and core understanding and vision of who Jesus Christ is. J.I. Packer, the late Anglican theologian, wrote this. He said, we are pygmy Christians. That is small. Pygmy Christians because we have a pygmy God or indeed a pygmy Christ. In other words, our vision of Christ and God is so small that it affects the rest of our life. Our vision of who Jesus is directly affects our growth and our maturity in him. Now, our culture has given us many different Jesuses to choose from. As John Stott writes, there is Jesus the aesthetic, Jesus the clown of Godspell, Jesus Christ Superstar, Jesus the Capitalist, and Jesus the Socialist, Jesus the Founder of Modern Business, and Jesus the Urban Guerrilla. And you add to this Jesus the Leader, Jesus the Manager, Jesus the Cosmic Santa Claus, and Jesus the Republican, and Jesus the Democrat, and Jesus the Social Reformer. Because we don't have a clear understanding and vision of Jesus, we're limited And moving on in our maturity in Him. Now this this teaching from Colossians will help us move deeper in our relationship with the Lord. And Paul begins this letter with a clear portrayal of who Jesus is. So are you ready? Can your modern ears hear it? Can your mind process it? Let's look at this passage and see what it tells us about Jesus. We begin with verse 15. He, meaning Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. So, the first thing this text tells us is he's the image of the invisible God. In other words, if you want to see what God looks like, you look at Jesus. Did you get that? He's the picture, he's the visual. I heard about a bishop showing up one Sunday at a church like this, like I'm doing today, to confirm folks. And the rector presented an eight-year-old girl to be confirmed. And the bishop asked the pastor, well, isn't she a little young to be confirmed? The rector responded, well, just ask her something. Ask her any question about the faith. So the bishop said, young lady, can you tell me who Jesus is? Let me just stop and ask that. Well, how would you answer that? Tell me who Jesus is. Well, the little girl responded, Jesus is God with skin on. Well, the bishop confirmed her. (laughs) What Paul is saying here in this verse is that Jesus is God with skin on. If you want to know what God looks like, we look at Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God. He doesn't say he reflects the image of the invisible God, but that he is the image of the invisible God. The moonlight that we see at night is a reflection, a reflection of the sun lighting up the moon. It's not the light of the sun. There's a difference. Jesus doesn't reflect the image of God. He is the image of God. The Apostle Paul said it this way in John chapter 1, beginning with verse 1. In the beginning... Was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Listen to how Jesus himself said it in John chapter 12, verse 44. Jesus said, Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me, and whoever sees me sees him who sent me. Or in John chapter 14, verse 9, he's in a conversation with Philip. And he says this, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Who is Jesus? He's the image of the invisible God. But Paul doesn't start, stop there. Secondly, he tells us that he's the firstborn of creation, verse 15. Now, without getting too theological here, let's put it in this way. He was firstborn, not created. He was eternally before all created things. In the Old Testament book of Psalms, you'll find this Psalm 89, verse 27. And I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. Many of the rabbis who studied the Old Testament scriptures interpreting this passage gave the title firstborn to the Messiah who was to come. And then the third thing this passage tells us is that in him all was created that is. All that was created, that is. Verse 16. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers, all things were created through him and for him. Now my, my translation that I'm using here is the ESV. And it says for by him, but there's a little note here and it says the actual Greek text says in him. In him all things were created. In him all things exist, both visible and invisible. Again, the apostle Paul reiterates this in his gospel at the beginning when he says in John chapter 1 verse 3, all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. Please note here that in Colossians 1:16 that it also says all things were created through him and for Him. It's all for Him. It's what it's all about. He's what it's all about. It's for Him. Then verse 17 gives us the fourth thing. He's eternal. Look at verse 17. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. Now this is hard for some people to grasp. Simply that before history, the Son existed. Before history, the Son existed. I like to say it this way. Before the second person of the Godhead became a human, He already was. Before the second person of the Trinity became incarnate in the baby Jesus, He'd existed before all history. He's eternal. He always was and He always is. And a fifth thing from this verse we see. He is the glue, verse 17, he is the glue which holds all things together. In him, all things hold together. He is what allows the created order to exist. The earth in all its incredible magnificence, the universe in all its magnitude, it's Jesus who keeps it all together. I don't know if you've seen the Louis Giglio's video, uh, visit, uh, video presentation of, called how great thou art. In this presentation, he takes pictures of various stars and planets of the universe and they get bigger and bigger and bigger. And he's comparing it to the earth and the earth is just like this little bitty thing. And and so he gets the biggest planet or star that we know of that exists and way out there in the universe. And the biggest star is the sign of the cross vividly showing on this star. It's marked with the sign of the cross. And then Giglio goes the other direction. He goes smaller and smaller and smaller under the microscope to items which you cannot see with the naked eye. And he lands on the protein called laminin. Laminin is the foundation which holds our cells and our organs together. It's the glue which holds stuff physically together in the universe. And wouldn't you know it, it's in the shape of a cross. Louis's presentation is awesome, but the major point is that our God is so great that in all things, from the largest items in the universe to the smallest items under a microscope, Jesus hold all, He holds all things together in heaven and on earth. He's the glue which holds it all together in him, as this text says, all things hold together. That's a pretty incredible claim but that's who we say Jesus is. But Paul doesn't stop there. He moves from the created order, from things visible and invisible, from thrones and kingdoms and eternity to the church. Look at verse 18. And he is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, and in everything that in everything might be preeminent. So here's the sixth thing this text tells us is that Jesus is head of the church. And he likens the church to a body. Jesus being the head. When you and I became a follower of Jesus, we became part of his body, the universal church, the Catholic Church, his body. And he's the head. Now I know many times we would like to be the head, or the pastor would like to be the head, or the bishop would like to be the head, or He who has the most money would like to be the head, or he who serves the most would like to be the head. But the Bible tells us here in Colossians that Jesus Christ is the head of the church. Then the seventh thing here we're told is that he's preeminent in all things. Verse 18, it's all about him. It's all about Jesus. Bishop Hanley Mule, the Anglican bishop who was also a Bible scholar, he wrote this. Back in the 1800s, he said, For the universe, for the church, Christ is and must be preeminently the first, the head. And therefore, he must be, he will be, he shall be, not only to the world and to the church, but to me, the creature of his will, the believer of his promise. Charles Simeon, the famous Anglican pastor in Cambridge in 1835, wrote this. He said, That in all things he might have preeminence. And he must have it, and he will have it, and he shall have it. And then the linchpin, for me anyway, of this whole passage comes in the next two verses, verse 19 and 20. Paul writes this, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross." All of God indwelt the carpenter from Galilee. All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell within him. And through his death on the cross, to make peace by offering himself, bringing reconciliation to you and me and God. Paul says this again in chapter 2, verse 9, when he says, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Paul is saying that Jesus was fully human and fully God at the same time. The visible expression of the invisible God. Paul pulls no punches. Jesus is God in the flesh, the firstborn of creation, the one through whom everything exists. He is eternal. He holds everything together. He's the head of the church and he's preeminent in all things. Now, Paul's not just making this up. Isn't that what Jesus said about himself? Remember when he was speaking to the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4, and they get in this discussion about who the Messiah is, and she says, I know that Messiah is coming. When he comes, he'll tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. And then in John chapter 5, he called God his father, making himself equal with God. Remember, it upset the religious leaders. This is what it says in John 5, 16. So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, he had been doing miracles, and some of them happened to be on the Sabbath day, the Jewish leaders persecuted him. And Jesus said to them, My father is always at work, and to this very day, I too am working. For this reason, the Jewish leaders tried all the harder to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath... But he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Remember the reason that he was actually killed? He's having this discussion with the high priest. He'd been arrested and he was having this discussion with the high priest. And the high priest says, tell us who you are. And Jesus said, and then he, Jesus remains silent. And then he finally says, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed one? Are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed one? And Jesus responds, this is Mark 14. I am, said Jesus, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of glory. Then the high priest tore his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses, he asked. You've heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they all condemned him as worthy of death. So who is this Jesus? He's very God, very God. He's the son of God who became flesh and was fully human and fully God at the same time. So who do you say this Jesus is? Is he your Lord? Is he your friend? Is he your savior? I hope so. But I hope he's much more. Because until we can grasp who he really is, We'll just continue to be wimpy, pygmy Christians. God wants us to grow up, to become mature in him. And the first step is to see Jesus for who he really is. John Stott, the English Anglican Bible scholars, wrote it this way. If only the veil could be taken away from our eyes, and we could see Jesus as he is in the fullness of his divine human person, and saving work. Then we would give him the honor that is due his name, and we would grow into a mature relationship with him. In the name of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.